Well, good morning, everybody. I was going to say it's good to see you, but since I'm not seeing you, I guess I can't say that. But I do have a question. How are you dealing with all the disruption? It seems everything has been turned upside down and inside out. Everything's changed or canceled. Schools are canceled. Gyms are canceled. Many of you are working from home. Some of you aren't working. Everything's changed. Everything's canceled. How are you dealing with the disruption? Uncertainty, anxiety seem to be the two words that describe what's going on. Well, as I thought about that this week and watching the news and all of that disruption, change, uncertainty, I was reminded of two things, though. The gospel hasn't changed, and the mission isn't canceled. What's the gospel? Well, we kind of have a living example by what's happening in the world. The Bible would tell us that every human being has been infected with a virus. The virus, according to the Bible, is called sin, and it's 100% fatal. But God sent Jesus to bring the cure for that virus. And Jesus comes, takes the virus, and gives us healing in response. That's the message of the gospel. The gospel is that we can't help ourselves, but God stepped in through Jesus and helped us when we could not help ourselves. Oh yeah, and the mission hasn't been canceled either. The way we describe our mission here at Calvary Church is continuing what Jesus started by connecting and impacting. How can we continue what Jesus started when you read through the Gospels, Jesus is always with people. Well, we need to think through how we can continue what Jesus started in a context of social distancing. But as Carlos mentioned, we've got technology that can help. How can we connect and impact in a world where we're not allowed to connect and impact has to be at a distance? I was reminded of a, an encounter Jesus had. A legal scholar came up to him. He was kind of testing, pushing Jesus to see if he could uh, get him to trip himself up. And he said, Jesus, based on all the commands of the Old Testament, which is the most important? And here's how Jesus answered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's kind of our mission. That's the gospel rolled up with our response well, how can we love God? Well, my guess is that you may have a little extra time on your hands. I know you have other duties that are taking more time, but if you commute to work or taking kids to school, you have a little extra time. Why not take some of that time and practice some spiritual disciplines that either may be new to you or some habits you've wanted to add to your life? You've heard me say in the past, if you hang out at Calvary Church, it would be a good habit to get into 15 minutes a day. Sit in a chair, take your Bible, read what God says, let him start the conversation. You pray to him, have that conversation. Build that habit into your lives. You know, just like building a relationship with anybody, it's going to take time. Deepening and building our relationship with God is going to take time too. So maybe part of what we're experiencing gives us a little bit of time to do that. And how about loving your neighbor as yourself? Well, let's leverage technology to that end. Let's take the cell phones that we often use to find things for ourselves and use that technology to reach out to others through texting, Instagram, FaceTime, cell calls. Let's reach out and connect with other people. 
The end hasn't changed. The mission hasn't been canceled. Maybe the means have been changed a little bit. Let's figure out how to use them to continue the mission and continue what Jesus started. Well, as you saw in the video, we're in a series that we're calling Fake News. And we're looking at some things that people think are in the Bible and often get quoted as if they're in the Bible, but they're not actually there. It's fake news. Now, to get you thinking along those lines, let me give you a little quiz. Question number one. What kind of fruit did Adam and Eve eat when they were in the garden that brought about the fall? My guess is if you didn't verbalize the answer, many of you were thinking apple. That's fake news. The Bible doesn't say what kind of fruit. It just says fruit. How about this one? When the Magi come to visit Jesus, and we often celebrate that at Christmas, how many wise men were there? I know that even if you didn't yell out the answer, many of you are thinking three, but that's fake news. The Bible doesn't say. We often think we know what it says, but it doesn't say. How about this one? If there are some really overly clean, um, sensitive mothers, and they often give a quote to their kids, they often say, you answer, blank is next to godliness. Yeah, I know many of you are thinking cleanliness. That's fake news. It's not in the Bible. Sorry, moms. <laughs> there are lots of things we assume are in the Bible, we think are in the Bible, but they're not in the Bible. Some of those sayings are benign. Some are even humorous, but sometimes they can be dangerous. As we saw last week, God helps those who help themselves. But until we recognize we are helpless, God's never going to step in and provide the help that only he can bring. If you believe the Bible says money is the root of all evil, you may begin to think that the Bible is anti-money or that God somehow doesn't like those or doesn't want to use those that have financial or monetary gifts. But the Bible doesn't say money's the root of all evil. So those benign and humorous sayings sometimes become dangerous because we begin to think that God's character is reflected in the fake news rather than his character reflected in the real news that the Bible does give. Well, this morning, we're going to look at, at another one of these um, fake news statements. And I must confess, I've heard this statement in and around Calvary Church numerous times. It goes like this, God won't give you more than you can handle. I know you've thought that. I know some of you have said that, but that's fake news. It's not in the Bible. Now, I know the motivation for saying it is probably a really good one. You see somebody experiencing pressure, they're in a difficult situation, and you want them to have courage, you want them to stand up, you want them to remain strong. And so you say, well, God won't give you more than, more than you're able to bear, but the problem is, that's not in the Bible. And when we use words that are not in the Bible and quote them as if they were in the Bible, we somehow wind up attributing to God parts of his character that really aren't true. Well, we're going to examine that statement today. We're going to examine it in a couple of different ways. We're first going to look at suffering, which is the context in which that comment often gets uh, mentioned. Then we're going to look at... Um, not, we'll look at comfort at the end, but temptation in the middle, because there is a saying in the Bible that sounds an awful lot like the fake news, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Well, how about suffering? You know, suffering is a normal part of life, 
And if you're not suffering right now, you either were recently suffering or you will be headed into suffering. And there is a sense in which we are all suffering these days. And so sometimes we're tempted to think or we're tempted to say to others, God won't give you more than you can bear. Hang in there. Your suffering isn't as bad as it could be. But that's not exactly what the Bible says. One of the most interesting passages in the Bible And maybe one of the passages that people love the most is Hebrews chapter 11. Now, some of you may know Hebrews chapter 11 as being the faith chapter. If you have your Bibles or your cell phone or whatever, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let me mention what the chapter is kind of about. The author of Hebrews looks back through history and he picks out people that had great faith. That's why it's called the faith chapter. And he's trying to highlight these people that had faith. And he's saying, these people had outstanding trust in God. And because of that, they're examples to us, not to trust ourselves, our circumstances, but to put our trust in God. And so examples are mentioned like Abel and Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, all of these great examples of faith. And then you come to verse 32, where the author picks up speed and almost like a hammer that's continually hammering on something over and over and over again. He mentions example after example after example. Let me, let me read beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back from the dead, raised to life again. As I read those words, you think, Charles, you sure you meant to read those words? Those verses sound like not only God won't give us more than we can handle, But God brings brings victory in the eyes of defeat. It seems like like we're losing, but God steps in, wins the battle for us. Yeah, but let's keep reading. Verse 35. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised. It's hard for me to read of that second group without taking a serious look at that crazy saying that obviously is not in the Bible. God won't give you more than you can handle. Did you read the list? Sawn in two, killed by the sword, jeered, stoned, ridiculed, maligned, outcast, executed. You know, sometimes we use that expression, God won't give us more than we can handle, to mean 
well, at least this won't lead to death. But that shows the foolishness of the statement because everybody dies. Think, for example, if um, somebody were, were to give that statement to Abel. Somebody comes up and says, Abel, don't worry about your brother Cain. It's no big deal. God won't give you more than you can. Oops. As Cain takes Abel's life. How about Uriah? Uriah, don't worry about David. Don't worry about David and your wife. God won't give you more than you can handle. Oops. Adultery and death. John the Baptist? John, don't worry about Herod and that machete. It's no big deal. God won't give you more than you can handle. But John the Baptist is executed too. God won't give you more than you can handle but everybody dies. It shows that God does give us more than we can handle, but that doesn't mean that God leaves us. Even think of Jesus praying in the garden, Lord, if there's any way, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this. It seems that Jesus is being given more than he can handle. You know, God often brings us to the end of ourselves so that we come to the beginning of his grace and his mercy and his strength rather than our own. Everybody dies. Therefore, God gives us all more than we can handle, at least at one time, if not at many more. Well, you've heard me say before that every one of those statements of fake news either has a grain of truth tucked in there somewhere, or there's a principle or something that connects with something in the Bible. And that brings us to the second point, and that's temptation. Now, here's the verse that bears some resemblance to the false, the fake news of God won't give you more than you can handle. Here's the verse from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. Now, here it is. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Doesn't that sound familiar? But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That verse does not say God will keep the maximum suffering from you. It says God will give you opportunities to get out of temptation so that temptation doesn't have to lead to sin. That verse is not about suffering. That verse is about temptation. Well, let's talk a little bit about Corinth. You know, Paul wrote this letter to the church, to the Christians in Corinth. Now, Corinth was... a uh, was a city well known in the ancient world as a place of greed and promiscuity, idolatry, life being lived off the rails, kind of like spring break on steroids. Oh yeah, when we used to have spring break. Um, you could go there and find all of your pleasures met, opportunities to fill any of your desires. That's what Corinth was like. And so Paul writes to the Christians there and says, you live in an environment where you're surrounded by temptations, but God doesn't allow you to be tempted in ways where you have to sin. He provides a way out. Let's uh, take a couple minutes to uh, do a little bit of exploration concerning temptation. What's temptation like? Well, uh, how many of you have a fat dog? I'm not judging, I'm just asking a question. A fat dog. Now, if you have a fat dog, what do you think the dog would say, or what would the dog do if the dog could get access 
to his own food without you having to feed him. My guess is your fat dog would eat himself into obesity and oblivion. And it wouldn't help if you were to sit down and instruct them, if you were to counsel your pooch by saying, now listen, slug, it's not healthy for you to eat all that food. You're going to get so fat, you're going to have to go out and I'll have to pull you along. And one day your arteries will be so clogged, and you're not going to survive and I'm going to miss you so much. Would your fat dog listen to you? Heck no. Because something about the dog will not allow himself or herself to say no if they have access to the food. All right, but let's move from the fantasy world to the real world. There's a cabinet in my house between the garage door and the kitchen. And in that little hallway is the cookie cabinet. And in the cooking cabinet, at any given time, there will be a couple packages of cookies, usually the kind I like. There'll also be some um, tasty cakes, uh, usually candy cakes, and now we've got some special orange cupcake. Uh, they're standing there. Now, there are also some healthy things in the cabinet. There's oatmeal in the cabinet because that's nice to look at and think you're healthy. Uh, we have crackers in the cabinet. We have fruit in the cabinet. Lots of stuff in the cabinet. Now, here's what typically happens. I rarely, I mean rarely, make it past that cabinet without opening it up and at least having one cookie. Sometimes I have more than one. Sometimes I have a pack of uh, candy cakes. And by the way, whatever happened to the three-pack of candy cakes, now we're down to two per pack. Pretty soon it's going to be one. It's not going to be worth it. I rarely make it past the cabinet. Now, how does temptation work then? Well, here's how it works. I get out of my car in the garage, and maybe I'm especially feeling disciplined that day, and I say to myself, I will not stop at the cookie cabinet. I will not open the door. I will not take the candy cakes. I will not take the orange cupcakes. I will not open the cookies. I will not uh, fall to the temptation that Kim has put in the cookie cabinet. I walk by the cabinet, and then I remember, huh, well, you know, supplies are running low and the supermarket's always crowded. I better check to make sure we have enough oatmeal because if we get locked in here forever, I need oatmeal to stay healthy. Or maybe I say, I need to go back in just to make sure we have enough raisins because raisins are good for me too. And I wind up and I open the cabinet to look at the oatmeal, but I look at the oatmeal, my eyes immediately fall to the cookies and they fall to the cupcakes. And before you know it, I'm eating cookies and cupcakes at the counter. How does temptation work? Well, there are two parts to temptation. Don't confuse the cause and the opportunity. Don't confuse the opportunity that's external and the cause that's internal. Think of it like this. Suppose you uh, go to your refrigerator to get a cool drink. You're out walking with your wife, trying to exercise. Now that the gyms are closed, you can't golf, you can't watch anything on TV. So you go and get something to drink. You're going in to watch a a disease movie with your spouse. You sit down, and rather than have to go back to the refrigerator to fill it again, you fill the soda right to the brim, and you're walking back very carefully, and just about that time, your daughter comes walking by, texting on her iPhone, listening to or watching all the Instagram posts, the people from Calvary Church, and she bumps into you. What happens? The carpet gets wet with your Pepsi. What's the cause? The cause is not your daughter doing Instagram, bumping into you, the cause is you had too much Pepsi in the glass. That's how temptation works. There's the internal cause, the external opportunity. 
the external opportunity, the cookies and cakes in the cabinet, but if there was no internal desire in me, there would be no opening the cabinet, eating the cookies. So here's the formula. Internal desire plus external opportunity equals conception and sin. James has a great example of that, a fishing metaphor. Now, some of you are, are fisher folks. Uh, how do you fish? Well, you put a lure on the end of your line. What do you need to catch a fish? You need a hungry or angry fish, and you need an attractive lure or bait. You take the lure, you throw it near the hungry fish, and if the fish's internal desire of hunger is captured by the external opportunity of the lure, the fish bites and you have fish dinner. That's the same way temptation works. Now, what's the point of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, though? Paul does not tell the Christians living in Corinth you all need to move out, get out of that cesspool, eliminate all the external opportunities. No. The point is, we need to change the internal desire. The external opportunities will always be there. What's going to stop and reduce our falling to temptation is reducing our internal desire. Well, how does that work? Well, think of it this way. That temptation is presenting to you a beautiful option, a tasty candy cake, a delicious orange cupcake, a wonderful cookie out of the case. We've got to find something more wonderful, more beautiful, that will capture our attention more than those things. Changing our internal desire that's why here at Calvary Church, we spend so much time talking about the gospel, talking about who God is, talking about who Jesus is. Because if we can fix our attention on God, fix our attention on Jesus, his love, his grace, his mission that includes us, all of those other things that are wonderful will shrink in their capacity to capture us because we will be chasing something much more beautiful and glorious than they can ever provide. So that verse about God won't give you more than you can bear, that's not about suffering, that's about temptation. And the anatomy of suffering, internal desire plus external opportunity equals sin. We need to work on the internal desire. And that brings us right back to what I said at the beginning of the message. Maybe that's a great reason for you and for me to take extra time and energy getting to know God a little better, getting to know Jesus a little better. Take some of that extra time that you have now. Read the Bible, pray, call, talk to friends. As Carlos mentioned, form a small group and chat with people, discuss uh, with them online, FaceTime each other, have conference calls with each other. Figure out ways to connect, to change your focus and attention from those things that often capture you to Jesus the one that should capture us. Well, what in the world should we do with our suffering then? We started by suffering and saying that everybody suffers and God does often allow more than we can handle, but never more than he can handle. And that's a reason for us to trust him. What should we do when suffering comes? Well, I'm glad you asked because we need comfort and God provides comfort. 
You know, there are um, a couple of verses in the New Testament that Paul writes, not in his first letter to the church at Corinth, but in his second letter, where he speaks directly to comfort and what to do with our suffering, pain, what happens when life becomes unbearable. Here are some verses from 2 Corinthians 1. Here's what Paul writes. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we, re- we ourselves receive from God. You know, one of the distortions that that statement of fake news makes, God won't give you more than you can handle, is it kind of makes it sound like God's up there dealing out difficulties, dealing out trouble, dealing out suffering, dealing out pain. Oh, I think I'll give you an abusive family. I'll give you heartbreak and pain. I'll take your loved ones from you. That's not the God we find in the Bible. How does Paul describe him? He's the God of compassion, the God of comfort. And all you have to do is read the beginning of the story. We talk a lot about the Bible as being one giant story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, the beginning of the story, we see God's original intention. There's no suffering in God's original intention. There's no evil. There's no pain. There's no heartbreak. There's no death. There's no disease. There's no coronavirus. None of that stuff in the beginning of the story. God's original intention does not include pain, suffering, trouble, heartache, any of that stuff. And the conclusion, the ultimate destination, is a destination without suffering and without heartache and without brokenness and coronavirus and pain and evil. All that stuff's gone. And so God's original intention and the ultimate destination don't include all of that suffering. Suffering comes because God is rejected. Suffering's part of the result that comes in act two. When human beings turn their backs on God, figure they have a better way, that's what brings the evil and the suffering and death and disease and all of that stuff. Now, that doesn't mean you can draw a line. There's not a one-to-one correlation between your suffering and pain and the sin that you do or what you deserve. It just means in general, when human beings rejected God, all hell broke loose. And things that God never intended are now raining down on this planet, and we experience some of them in our lives. So God is a God of compassion, a God of comfort, whose original intention and ultimate destination do not include all of that suffering that often overwhelms us. And right after God the Father is mentioned, the Lord Jesus is mentioned by Paul. Read through the Gospels. You have some extra time. Read through them these next uh, couple of weeks. And as you'll do, and as you do, you will see Jesus reflecting the compassion and comfort of his Father perfectly. He feeds those that are hungry. He heals those that are diseased and affirmed, that are infirmed. Jesus comes and brings God's original intention. Just little taste of it. If you hang out at Calvary, you probably have heard me say, the miracles of Jesus are never demonstrations of raw power. The miracles of Jesus are hors d'oeuvres. They're foretaste of the ultimate destination, and it's kind of the remnant of God's original intention. So Jesus comes and has compassion on people, and Jesus brings comfort into their lives. That's exactly what he'll do for you.
and he promises to do for all who follow him. So maybe the biggest distortion that comes out of God won't give you more than you can handle, it takes our understanding of God and his character and just twists it. God is not one who deals out suffering, evil, pain, heartache, death, and disease. God's a God of comfort, a God of compassion. He sends Jesus on this mission of comfort and compassion. And what does Jesus do? He takes the virus himself to bring healing to us so that we can be cured of the virus called sin. But that doesn't answer the question of what we should do with our suffering then. Well, here's the formula from 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Praise be to God, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So here's how it works. Paul's suffering. And if you want to read what real suffering is, read the rest of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And you'll read Paul in the midst of suffering beyond his ability to bear it, he says. It kind of sounds like God's giving him more than he can bear. Paul's suffering plus God's comfort through Jesus equals comfort to others. So as we're suffering, even with suffering beyond our ability to bear, and we think it may be, or maybe it actually is, but God will comfort us through his spirit, through his um, other believers. They surround us. The community of the gospel surrounds us. He'll bring comfort to us so that we can then comfort others. Remember I said the mission uh, isn't canceled? Continue what Jesus started. Paul's suffering plus God's comfort through Jesus leads to comfort for others. Let's personalize that. Our suffering, your suffering, plus God's comfort through Jesus and the community of believers should lead to comfort for others. I made a list this past week of just some of the suffering that I know of in our community called Calvary Church. Now, I know that there's probably a lot of suffering that I don't know of, but here's some that I know of. If we were all gathered in one room, I think I'd probably ask you to raise your hand if you fit into one of these categories. You don't have to raise your hand at home. I just want you to think, do you experience this suffering? Have you? There are certainly people in our church that have and are experiencing it now. Grief, loss, loneliness. There are people at Calvary Church that have lost loved ones just in the recent past. They're experiencing grief, loss, loneliness in the midst of a pandemic when they're not even sure what to do with all of that. How about addiction? Do you find yourself trapped or do you have loved ones that are trapped in some kind of addiction to alcohol, to a substance, to sex, to whatever? Addiction and you can't seem to get free? How about betrayal? Divorce? Broken families? 
animosity, almost hatred between people that should be in a relationship that's at least civil. Miscarriage? Death of a child? If I've heard the expression once, I've heard it many times at Calvary Church. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Parents shouldn't bury children. How about vocational pain, financial pain? Some of you have lots of anxiety and uncertainty when you're looking at the near future. Maybe your job's on the ropes. Maybe you've already been given notice. Maybe you're looking at the bills that will continue and the amount of revenue that's not going to be able to cover them. Cancer, heart problems, failing health, anxiety, depression, and nothing like this circumstance sets you off. Maybe you just feel paralyzed and perplexed by what's going on in our world today. Well, here's what I want to say to you. Turn to God, the God of all comfort, who through Jesus delivers that comfort, maybe not in ways you can fully comprehend. The Bible never promises that God won't give you more than you can handle, but he promises whatever you handle, that in Jesus he'll go through it with you. And what's the result? We should be comforting others. We should use that. So rather than trying to hide that suffering and pain, and pretend that we're not experiencing the hurt that we are. Use that suffering to connect. So here's your assignment. Connect with God. Take that suffering and pain that we all experience to one degree or another and go to the God of all comfort, the Savior of all compassion and comfort, and experience the comfort that the gospel provides. And then... Use that suffering and pain to reach out to others. So yeah, send text and make phone calls and do FaceTime and reach out through Instagram. Whatever vehicles you have as you're maintaining social distance out of love for our neighbors, but let's allow that suffering not to isolate, but allow that suffering to cause connection. And just like 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 say, impact our suffering plus God's comfort should lead to comfort for others. Kind of sounds like something we should be continuing that Jesus started. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we often live more by the quotes of fake news than we do the statements of truth that we find in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that as some of these bits of fake news come up, whether they be God helps those who help themselves, when we realize that when it comes to the big issues of life and the main issue of sin, we can't help ourselves. Or maybe when we think, well, God won't give me more than I can handle, but yet life is often bigger than I can handle, and death certainly is beyond my ability to handle but in the gospel, the God of all comfort and compassion, our Savior of all compassion and comfort, even deals with death on our behalf. So, Father, help the realities 
of your character and the character of our Savior to give us stability in the world so that we continue what Jesus started by connecting and impacting others as we have connected with Jesus and are impacted by the gospel. 